1990, in Czechoslovakia, the Velvet Revolution demonstrated to the world that there can be a major political transition of power without large-scale violence. It started with student protests, followed by a popular uprising of the people, and it led to the Communist Party being replaced by a democratically elected government, and the country was reborn. Now stick with me, because my guest on the podcast today, she was there. Laurie Spengler found herself in Prague in 1990, working with a big American law firm on some major privatization transactions that were helping this fledgling state to re-enter the world economy. Nowadays, Laurie Spengler is the president and CEO of Enclude, an impact investing advisory firm that gives itself the unique title of being an impact investment bank. They work all over the world, helping to build businesses that are solving some of the world's biggest challenges. And as will become clear in the conversation, Laurie isn't phased by much. She has a high tolerance for working with uncertainty and ambiguity. And that can be traced back to her years managing transactions in a country that was rewriting its laws and rebuilding its financial institutions. And these are the stories we love here on the Good Future Podcast. My name is John Treadgold and I'm asking the big questions about the future of sustainable business, the new economy and how your investment decision, no matter how big or small, can have an impact. I've spoken about impact investment with many of my guests on this podcast, but with Laurie, we go deeper. We get into the pros and cons of some of the more technical financial strategies. We also discuss the vital issue of which enterprises are best suited for receiving an impact investment and how to level the playing field between those seeking capital and those looking to invest. Laurie also shares the one big question which she asks herself and her team at the start of any transaction. It's simple, but powerful. It's, what problem are we solving for with this capital? It not only helps her map out a plan, but it keeps impact and its beneficiaries squarely in the crosshairs of their project. Now, whether you work in sustainable development, in finance, or if you just want to know more about social enterprise, Laurie's insights are super valuable. She's a global leader in this space, a rare intellect, but also she has an uncanny ability to bring these ideas to life and make it easy to understand. And for those keen to go deeper on Eastern European politics from the 1990s, stay tuned after the credits as I push Laurie for some more details about her time over there. All right, let's get going. Of course, you can find articles I've written and all the show notes on my website, johntreadgold.com. You're very welcome to leave me a comment or send through an email. I love your feedback. And for a more visual version of what we've been talking about here, check out the Instagram page, which is at Good Future Podcast. All right, here we go. Laurie, your background has a big focus on finance. You've worked in private equity mergers and acquisitions, but you've made the switch to impact investing. Can you tell us a little about your journey and, and how you got there? Absolutely. Thanks. And it's a, it's a pleasure to be with you, John. I, I, yeah, when I look back on uh, my career, and of course, I'm at the, the, the point where you do kind of look at your CV and you see lots of different job descriptions, if you will, and moments of time of, of choice. But I also think there's been a consistent theme 
with my choices and with the different jobs that I've had. And one of the themes is really how do you mobilize financial resources for more than financial gain? And when I first started out, the phrase impact investing wasn't coined, but the activity of deploying money and financial resources for more than a financial gain was certainly very well established. So my personal background, I'm, a, I'm the daughter of a serial entrepreneur. My father ran small businesses in the United States in different geographies. I had the privilege and pleasure of working in those companies from a very young age and just getting an exposure really to what it means to be an entrepreneur. And my father's metric for success was not just what he was able to bring home to the family and, and what we had at the dinner table, but actually he really measured a success by what was going on in the enterprise with his employees, with the broader community, what he was able to contribute to the community. And I really took those lessons to heart and then I think applied them. Um, I did decide to go to graduate school in law because uh, having been so exposed to business, that, that was certainly a, an encouragement both from my father, but also a sense for myself that that would be something new and a, a bit expansive of my professional skills. But even out of the gate, I used law to advise uh, homeless communities and homeless people in the Boston area. So because I really believe that law itself, again, was another tool for social and economic change. And then over the course of my career trajectory, working in a law firm, going off to Central and Eastern Europe after the wall fell, working in privatization transactions was another manifestation of that. We were typically representing governments and quasi-government entities in what was effectively a, a redistribution of assets in these countries and really getting those assets in the hands of entrepreneurs and uh, small and medium-sized enterprises. Then left and set up my own firm, becoming an entrepreneur in my own right, and then selling that to my management team, uh, all women, by the way, at the time, not by design. It just uh, worked out that way. And that firm still continues. And that's when I joined the Shorebank family and then moved into to include. But so, as I say, if I, I look at the CV roster, you'll see lots of different jobs, but it's the consistency of the theme and how I've been able to expand that theme uh, in my work. I'm so intrigued by your past in the Czech Republic, or well, if it was Czechoslovakia at the time, I think that's such yeah. an interesting time in the world. Did you go in after it had separated? You know, you're obviously aware of what was going on politically. What was it like at that time? Yeah, so I actually have a really interesting chapter of my life there. I went out to what was still Czechoslovakia, implicit in your question. I started traveling there in January of 1990. I was still in New York. So, you know, the wall fell November of 89. January of 1990 was my first trip out there. I ultimately moved to Brussels and was working in Czechoslovakia, Hungary, and Poland for a few, few years. And I moved permanently to Prague, lived there for 15 years, just after the country split. And I set up my own firm. I went there with a very big firm, White & Case, doing privatization transactions, which was a fascinating time, and then left and set up my own firm. Because what I realized is everyone was focusing on the handful of very large transactions, the Skoda Volkswagen transaction, for example, which we, White & Case, advised on. But really, people weren't focusing on SMEs, and they're the lifeblood of these economies. And so that's why I, I left the big firm and set up my own firm. But it was an amazing time, John, I have to say. And going in to run businesses and, and set things up when politics is so fragile, surely no financial institutions, that, that must have really set you up to not be worried about barriers, to find ways around, to, to think really creatively about problems? Absolutely. I mean, I think you develop a high tolerance for ambiguity and uncertainty, a high tolerance. Not that it stops you, 
but that it actually ultimately helps you. But you've got to figure out a way to navigate through. I mean, for example, I mean, the laws were being drafted, right, as we're, as we're in there structuring transactions, or the laws are being transformed, because it was a very robust legal system, but it was under the former regime. You actually had a lot of ambiguity and uncertainty in what, how this is all going to unfold. Um, I think it also makes you, John, especially being someone who's, you know, I, I wasn't from the Czech Republic or Slovak background or history. I didn't speak the language. I didn't have family lineage, uh, if you will, in that part of the world. So it really does also push you, encourage you to be open, curious. And I think those, I mean, just a way to live your life. I think it's a fantastic experience to be um, uh, engaged and challenged by a different culture, different system. The adaptability and agility you develop along the way are requirements. And if you don't, you won't stay, right? You need that. Um, to navigate through. But I, it was an amazing time. And I was a student of political science and economics undergraduate before I went to law school. So you're really also observing and participating in a very modest way, obviously, but you're participating in what is an absolute transformation politically and economically of a society. That's so fascinating. I'd love to keep digging deeper about that time, but I'm also keen to get onto some more contemporary issues especially your role as CEO and president of Include, which is an impact advisory and investment company. So in that role, what are the key forces that you see as driving the adoption of impact investing today? Right. So, so Include Capital, your description is accurate. We are, another way to think of us, John, is we are an impact investment bank. I say that because, first of all, we're regulated, and that's important as we think about the maturation of our field and the emerging players in the broader ecosystem. But what we're not is an asset manager. So we do not have funds under management. That's a choice that we have made. What we've really felt is important in the chair that we occupy is to help to strengthen the transaction flow and the investability of opportunities. So we're that connective tissue between the sources and uses of, of, of capital. So that's what to kind of put a further point on where we sit. In terms of the forces, I think there are several fold. It starts with generally an awareness. And I think today, every headline, or at least every newspaper we pick up, no matter where we're sitting in Australia or I'm in London today, reminds us that the current system isn't working for people and the planet. If you really take an inclusive, long-term sustainability perspective, I mean, there are issues, gaps, failures that I think also with technology and with, with social media, we see perhaps more specifically than, than we have before. So despite the global progress that we've made, there are really acute pain points and serious issues. So it starts with awareness, but I think that in terms of forces, how do we convert that awareness into action? I'd say a couple of things. One is I think you need to find, and we are already seeing some what I would call pioneering actors in different categories of players around the ecosystem. If you look at the supply side of the ecosystem in the investor category, you've got to disaggregate that and look at some of the large institutional players as well as the family offices and foundations. And I think what you need to really build momentum, you need pioneering players across each of those categories of actors. And we're starting to see that. We need more, but we're starting to see that. 
And the second thing I would say, John, is networks. I'm a big believer in the power of networks, especially when we're trying to straddle different geographies, different sectors, different thematics, different issue sets. So I think the Global Impact Investing Network, obviously as a global network, is a tremendous force and contributor, but there are local and regional networks um, that are galvanizing away, including in Australia. And I think those are really important. The third force, and this will sound a little bit self-serving because of the role that we play, but is inter in intermediation. I think there has been sometimes an expectation that because we identify transactions that have impact elements to them that just by shining a spotlight on them the deals will get done you know voila will just introduce or as I say shine the spotlight and things will happen but these deals are made they are created they are structured and so I do think we've got to dial up intermediation and then the fourth I would say is retail my personal view is that until we unlock the retail markets, we're really not going to move the dial. It's a process to get there. I think that some people are chipping away at that. We're certainly trying in our own right. If you look at what's happened in France with the solidarity funds, I think they've demonstrated that when you tap into that retail individual appetite, you can really build momentum. So those would be a couple of the forces that I see as important. That's great. Yeah, I was going to mention those first three were sounding like your typical kind of institutional investor angle, but, but the retail one is an important one. I mean, I think it does factor into the institutional side because, you know, a lot of the time the retail investors are at a, at a far end where it'd be pension funds, super funds, that sort of thing. What are some good examples of impact investing that's accessible to retail investors? Is there any good examples of what is available and what's working currently or what's on the way? Yeah. So, I mean, just building on the one example I, I mentioned. So, if you look at France, they've had these fonds solidaires. These are um, mutual funds, effectively, that employers are obliged to offer their employees. And simply in the structure of these funds, 10% of the assets are very deliberately focused on social enterprises and, and social undertakings. And it turned out that when they started to offer these products, they were wildly popular with people because they're responding to what we're just talking about, the, the deep appetite for individuals to say, you know what, I'd, I'd like to have some of my wealth, no matter what level my wealth is, aligned with these types of social issues and, and, and challenges. I think mutual funds, I think in the UK, we're working on things called pensions with purpose, really trying to encourage pension fund managers and the structures of pension fund products to look at some of those examples from France and build out a product suite that employers in the UK could make available to employees. If we look at in the US, 401k, I mean, as an employer working in impact, I am somewhat challenged at times by saying, why is it that the people who work in our company every day focused on impact investing cannot avail themselves of 401k options. So there are a few emerging, John, but I, a number of people are working on this. So for me, it's mutual fund products, 401k type offerings that I think are really emerging. There are some examples. I mean, Calvert, if you look at the Calvert Foundation and some of the debt products they're offering and the very small ticket participations that you can subscribe to as a debt investor. So there are some specific issuers who are looking at this. But if we're talking about moving a market, I think we do have to look at mutual fund type products. That's right. And I think a lot of my audience would perhaps be sitting in those pension funds, in those superannuation funds, feeling like they'd love to do their job and, and have a little bit more purpose. Would you have any advice for you know finance professionals who are keen to move towards impact investing and, and maybe help them understand, you know, where's the biggest learning curve and, and how they might make that switch? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that for the large institutions, and I've, I've spent more of my time over the past couple of years getting to know them and understanding some of the challenges, quite honestly, when you are working inside a large institution. In our work, we're typically on what we would call the sell side. So we're representing actually the people who are going to use the impact capital to deliver products and services. So we're typically on the sell side. But it means I'm in front of the big institutions trying to encourage them to participate in the transactions we're bringing to market. And in the course of that interaction, as I say, I've developed a, maybe a, a, a deeper sensitivity than I had before about how do you navigate these big institutions. Having said that, my very specific advice would be get started, make an allocation. The institutions that are doing good things here are the ones who have said, if we wait to re-steer the entirety of this institution, the, the time horizon is simply too long. But what we can do is make an allocation. If you look at um, TIA, now Nuveen, that's what they did. They made a dedicated allocation with a team. It's important. It's not just a, a capital allocation for quote unquote impact. It's with a dedicated team. Why? Because they've really got to dig in and do this every day and map the opportunity set, underwrite these investment opportunities, learn by doing. But the good news is, John, there's such an expanding universe of product and investment opportunities out there. If you make a several hundred million allocation, you can deploy that in a very reasonable period of time. So my advice to the big institution is make the commitment, get started. This is clearly where I think capital markets are going. You don't want to wait. You want to be part of this and you want to be responding to your constituents, pension holders and the like now. So make an allocation, Put a dedicated team in place. It's likely that you're going to start with probably more often fund-like products as opposed to directs, which I think makes eminent good sense. But as I say, the good news is there's a big growing universe of investment opportunities out there. But get started uh, and make an allocation. I wonder, perhaps we're preaching to the converted with the people that are sort of listening to to this story and that perhaps they, they really want their organization that they work within to take that approach, to push further, but you know, they're facing some obstacles. Would there be any, any good lessons that you've had that can help people who are a little bit more progressive to try and get their more conservative organizations over the line? First of all, don't speak in jargon. You're right, Jana, we encounter this a lot in our growing community. When we look around the room, oftentimes we say, well, wait a minute, all of us in this room are, are engaged in some way, we're doing this. And if we are going to expand the universe, move the market, we've got to bring people inside who are not part of this conversation. So I think we do have to be careful about the language that we're using and avoid jargon. But I think it starts with looking at the portfolios that are out there. I mean, the good news is there's now more and more information. Look in your own markets. I mean, Christian Super has published its portfolio. They've been very open about it. If you look at their portfolio, it's a smart portfolio. It's a well-performing portfolio. It's no longer a debate about language and concepts we actually can look at portfolios. Look at PGGM. They've just issued and mapped their entire portfolio against the Impact Management Project. Look at AXA. They've published their holdings, and now they're moving from their own balance sheet into third-party capital. That's what I would start with, John, is to actually get down to brass tacks and look at, look at Nuveen. Look at the big institutional players that have track record, that have portfolios, and analyze them. Talk about them. And then actually ask yourself, how different 
is that a three-dimension framework from risk return to integrating risk return and impact. And if you do it right, the impact driver is actually core to the business that you're underwriting and analyzing. So actually, it starts to feel very familiar as you get going. But I would start by looking factually at what others have done. Yeah, that's really good advice to look at the familiar and how can that be adapted. And I'd love to then switch to probably the other end of the spectrum in terms of of impact investing and maybe ask you some examples of some of the more novel but impactful structures you've come across. For me, there are three categories of of innovation. One is, and I, I think it's quite an important one, is repurposing traditional structures for impact. And I'll, I'll give a couple of examples of that. And the second category would be some of the new instruments. And the third is where we yet need to go. So I'll just kind of walk through with that logic flow. So if repurposing traditional structures for impact, there are some very easy ones that we're seeing now with greater frequency. One would be if we look at a lot of the private product and the private equity structures, and private equity structures are familiar, especially to investors coming into impact for the first time. They're used to seeing PE structures. But what's been, I think, interesting is actually linking the carried interest to the impact results. If you're an asset manager selling a fund with an impact thesis, I think it is completely appropriate. And I would encourage more investors to hold that asset manager accountable for the impact results and link the payment of the carry to the impact results. And as I said, we're seeing more and more funds structured along those lines. But it's a PE, familiar structure, but what's different is the carry. Second um, example, John, would be how we manage what I would call responsible exits. If we look at one of the more mature areas of impact in microfinance, just because it's it's been around for a while, one of the conversations a few years ago in impact investing was, oh gosh, there are no exits. You know, we can get in, but there's no liquidity. How do we get out? And as we started to see with microfinance, um, there started to be exits, people quite rightly said, well, wait a minute here, how are we actually taking M&A processes and structures and ensuring that if we cared about impact on the way in, what does that look like on the way out? This is an area actually where Include has quite a bit of experience, and we've structured a number of these M&A transactions, now not only in microfinance, but in the off-grid solar sector as well. Again, it's taking a familiar M&A, it's a controlled auction process, There's no rocket science to how you run a controlled auction, but you build in very deliberately the impact criteria before you get started, one point. And second point is you think about how can you distribute part of the liquidity? So there are some interesting features to how you run those controlled auctions. And the third example I would give in this category would be using holding company structures. Although I said PE is a familiar approach for investors, oftentimes for the underlying investee, it's not quite fit for purpose. And the reason it's not quite fit for purpose is often the temporal limitation on a closed-end fund structure. So using holding company structures or corporate structures, again, familiar instruments, but repurposing them for impact-driven businesses, whether they be single issuer businesses or portfolio businesses. We're seeing quite a bit of movement in there. We've structured a Luxembourg holding company ourselves, which is an open-ended vehicle with global reach to invest in real economy banks around the world. So those would be a couple of examples of the repurposing. On the new instruments, you know, obviously the, the pay for results, which is a, a familiar 
contract mechanism, but putting that into the development impact bonds and the social impact bonds, I do think is definitely a, a movement here of a, of a newer instrument. There have also been some really interesting developments in employee participation units around impact. I alluded to one in responsible exits, but there are other participations of um, employee units that we're seeing in deals that we're quite encouraging of. And then where do we need to go is, you know, ultimately, I think we should be seeing companies that are issuing impact dividends, monetizing impact. That's ultimately where we're going. What are the new uh, ways that we can monetize that impact for both investors and for the enterprises that are generating the impact? So those, are, those would be a few. I think this is an interesting one, the element of private equity, PE, the similarities, but also the big differences. I mean, in PE, it's generally the founders of an enterprise that are seeking capital, but in impact investing, it can sometimes be a third party, you know, a development agency, a foundation. How do you manage that space that can grow, that lack of communication that can grow between an investor and the final beneficiaries? It requires deliberate, frequent challenged engagement. There's no simple, oh, I've cracked the code because I have a new dashboard. And that dashboard reports for the different audiences. This is definitely high touch and real time engagement. But I do think, John, if you go back to something we flirted with earlier in the conversation, even though these are different audiences, I would argue that at the core of the proposition, Everyone should be asking the same question. What problem are we solving for with this capital? That should be the unifying question that helps whether you're the investor putting the capital in or the end user participating, the alignment between and among those audiences. I just don't think it's a different question if you're the investor or the end user. And if it is a different question, I think we have a misalignment. So for us, in every deal that we come at, we actually literally write that down. What problem are we solving for with this capital? And I do think that is your grounding point, your center point. It's not fancy language. You know, it's, it's layperson, simple language. But that, to me, is, is what we have to keep front and center as you continue to have those engagements with the different audiences. Focus on what problem are we solving. I think it can help avoid a whole range of issues. Impact investing suffers from this semantic problem, defining the term itself, which then leads into lots of impact washing and certain funds being labeled impact when in fact they might not really be achieving as much and if they're then asked what problem are we solving if they can't answer it then perhaps it shouldn't be labeled as an impact investment so i think yeah that helps on so many levels you're right what we're seeing now is a lot of people gravitating towards the impact label it's gaining traction you know when the economist is writing about it the ft is writing about it the new york times is writing about it i'm sure the australian publications you know people start to gravitate towards it I welcome it. I'm part of the big tent, I would say constituency, with a qualification. And the qualification is what we just talked about. There has to be clarity. There has to be transparency. And there should be segment, I would say, segmentation of impact. I don't want to be in a situation where I'm necessarily judging that's better or worse. But there's a difference. And that, to me, is where we really need to push the envelope a little bit and avoid the judgment, but be clear about the type, the scope, the nature of the impact that investment proposition is actually having. And I think 
within, for example, the sustainable development goals, if we start to use things like that as kind of these general on-ramps for people to be around the same tables within certain thematics, I think it's a ripe opportunity for us to sharpen our game on segmentation. We tend to use the impact management project framework as the starting point, the different dimensions there where they talk about what is the impact, who are you touching with the impact? And I think that who driver is one that teases out very quickly the segmentation. For example, if you're working in microfinance, just go back to it because it's familiar, a rural microfinance operator, the profile of who they are serving will be very different than an urban microfinance operator. It's not right or wrong or better or worse, it's different. And if you follow that logic then, what you need to ask yourself is what's the type and stripe and term of the capital each of those operators needs to deliver on its business model, impact mission, target segment. And that to me is where we sometimes lose the plot, is that we're not asking what capital we really need to deliver on that particular solution with the clarity of segmentation. Mm, I mean, different business models obviously are going to need different capital allocations and i think that's a really useful point really important for certain social enterprises they might be at all different levels but so often there's this question of should they be going for impact investing should they be giving up equity are they at the right stage or perhaps loans are what they need there's a big spectrum there and in helping you know social enterprise not for profits trying to navigate this what are some of the barriers that might come up some of the questions they might ask themselves to to really work out where they sit yeah, it's a, no, it's a really important area, John. And we, as I said earlier, we work a lot with the actual operators, the enterprises that are deploying the capital to generate the impact. I mean, we have to remember in this whole conversation, investors, although they're critically important, they're enablers. They're not the deliverers or the generators of impact. They're enablers of, of impact. So focusing on the enterprises, I mean, I think it really starts, John, with understanding your own business model and quite honestly, where your revenue comes from. I emphasize this because I think with the momentum of impact investing, I do have a bit of a worry that enterprises and not-for-profits are feeling that they have to pivot and present themselves as impact investing opportunities. And not everything, not every product, service, or undertaking actually makes sense from an investment proposition. What I mean to say is grant an ongoing subsidy we still need in our society. And I think the starting point is to be very, very clear whether you are a revenue generating business or not, or are you partially revenue generating or not. Be honest about that because I think the power of the transparency and the linkage of your model with the impact you're delivering. That's at the core. So start there. That's critical because the follow-on point is if you're going to take any external money that has an expectation of return, what my friend John Kohler likes to call the return trip of capital, whether that's debt or equity, there's an expectation it's coming back. Well, you better understand how your enterprise can fulfill that commitment because you are taking on a commitment to have that capital return. Forget what you might make on that capital, but just the capital itself, how is it coming back? And I, you know, this sounds maybe quite simplistic, but I do find that these are the basic building blocks of any enterprise. 
and harking back to I, how I started watching my father build businesses. This is what you've got to know as, a, as an entrepreneur, as an enterprise manager at your core. Once you understand that, then of course, the next set of questions would be, what's the growth trajectory? Again, one of my concerns is that too often we're focusing on, we, the broader industry is focusing and hunting for the sharp J-curve or growth curve company. I sometimes say that people are hunting for the next Steve Jobs in Ethiopia. I mean, that's just not the undertaking, I think, that warrants our focus as a community. But understanding what and how your enterprise will grow, not for the sake of growth, but growth for impact relevance and impact delivery. That's just critical because with those two things in hand, then you're in a position to say to the investor, here is the type of capital that I need. Here are the terms and conditions of that capital because I still too often find this conversation asymmetrical in terms of the power structure and in the expectation dynamics. And what we're trying to do in our own firm is to level that playing field a little bit and have informed conversations between the enterprises and the investors. And you guys that include have a really broad scope uh, for who you support, who you manage. Do you see any trends in the particular industries or fields that respond well to financing like this? You're right. So we have a global perspective. I would say geographically, we've had more focus of our work in sub-Saharan Africa in South Asia and now increasingly in North America, interestingly enough. And there's a, there's a story there because our firm came out of a broader holding company structure. We had sister companies that were working in North America. We're no longer part of that structure. So, so we've been looking at or been asked to look at North America in a, in a different way. So it's not to say that the other geographies don't have opportunity. I just came back from, as you know, and more in, in, in your markets and I see tremendous opportunities. So I, I really do think the opportunities absolutely are global. I think the critical need, though, John, is to understand the local community that you are responding to, participating in. And maybe that sounds uh, like a familiar refrain you've heard from others, but I do think it's under-recognized, actually, at times. I think it's global. In terms of sectors where we're seeing activity of investment structures, financial inclusion still remains very vibrant. And I mean financial inclusion, not just microfinance. It's it's well beyond microfinance, inclusive of, but well beyond it. Some people say, oh, well, you know, it's been around for so long. Haven't we cracked the code on it? The answer is no, we have not. Uh, we have not. The numbers every day will remind us. So financial inclusion, I mean, some really interesting operator models that are growing and also multi-country models. We have the privilege of supporting BRAC outside of Bangladesh and all of the countries in which BRAC operates raising third-party capital. And it's been phenomenal what they've been able to achieve in financial inclusion. Also, I would say in the energy and particularly the off-grid arena, there's been a proliferation, of course, of off-grid solutions. And uh, now those, those business models are showing real traction. Last year, we advised Phoenix as it was sold to Angie, which I think was a real mark in the industry that a large corporate is starting to look at the off-grid sector and saying, wow, these business models have a real viability. And I think we're continuing to see, given the need in energy, we're seeing quite a bit of activity in sustainable land use across the globe. I mean, Australia, of course, this is very active in your market, but we're seeing that now more expansively with folks. And I would say related to that is food and agriculture. Um, this has been a, a, a tricky one. I mean, of course, the demand is huge and the number of people, farmers who have livelihood dependence on agriculture, you know, just enormous. Yet we've struggled to see real investment 
opportunities at scale, we're starting to see some real movement there. And that's quite exciting. So, And then maybe the last one, which is a cross-cutting job, would be gender. The first Gender Smart Investment Summit was held, the first ever, in London about a month ago. It was a, an invitation-only event, a curated conversation of over 300 active practitioners. And it was staggering, actually, when you took the inventory of products from public equity products to private equity products and, and things in between. Uh, so that would be a cross-cutting thematic, but I think that's also really motivating both enterprises, asset managers, and, uh, and asset owners. Bringing it closer to home, a little bit self-serving, I'd love to drill down to the Pacific region, Asia-Pacific region. Do you have any insights on, on what you guys have your eyes on there and, and any big opportunities? I just want to make one comment and go back to the, based on your region, go back to the one of the earlier points about forces. I mean, I was just incredibly impressed when I was there for the Asia-Pacific Impact Summit. And I've seen this, I was in Australia five years ago, and then again this, this year. And what has happened in building a community of practitioners, of doers, not just talkers, I mean, it was tremendous. I think those opportunities to bring folks together, even if, John, the rooms are largely full of folks who are who are already along the, the pathway. I still think there's real value to that. So just, you know, hats off. I think you've, you've built a, a tremendous community. I will say my observation, and this makes a lot of sense, is that the most frequent questions I received and the deals that people were, were getting most excited about were domestic deals. And that makes sense. Oftentimes, as people engage in these strategies, it's a place-based strategy that takes hold. Uh, we see that in other markets. I mean, I think that's great. I certainly would encourage, and this is now, of course, in line with what, what we do, I certainly would encourage the Australian players to be looking outside of Australia as well, not as a substitute force, but in addition to, because for us and for me personally, some of the most exciting aspects of this work is creating those linkages between what's down the street to where I live and what I'm learning from another market environment. So I would just encourage the kind of global outreach and perspective as well, even staying within your thematic. I can give one example from my own experience, but let me just go back to Australia. So I think moving from a place-based strategy or expanding beyond a place-based strategy to international pursuits, I think is, is really important. Australian practitioners have a lot to contribute, particularly in the area we just talked about in sustainable land use and some of the climate change initiatives, because you actually have been real leaders there, uh, which I think is, is, is very exciting. I think on financial inclusion and some of the other thematics, uh, given that your domestic banking configuration, I think there's an area I would say maybe to explore internationally and try to um, catalyze some additional movement domestically. I mean, you've got a couple of players, you've got some members of what we call the Global Alliance for Banking on Values in Australia. Bank Australia is one of the members. And there's a growing group of real economy banks. But I think this is an area where we desperately need across the globe more activity. And I think Australia, you're in a good position to try to dial up some of those opportunities. Good to hear some optimism about Down Under. We're all about that. And then, you know, we've talked a lot about where we've come from in the past. It'd be great to look a little further forward, some sort of forecasts. I mean, you and I have spoken in the past about this concept of impact investing being a success when the concept dissolves, when all companies are forced to measure their impact. Do you think we're on our way there? And why maybe haven't we done this already? I think we're on our way, but we certainly cannot declare victory. We are a long way from declaring victory because really what we're talking about is transforming a system. 
I mean, this is at the end of the day, we talked earlier in the conversation about reminders every day about where our current system is failing us. So we are talking about changing a system, changing a paradigm, changing approach. But what that means is that behaviors have to change. This is not just about product innovation, analytical tools and instruments. It's not, I mean, those are very important building blocks, but it's more than that. So what's holding us back? I mean, let's be honest, inertia is a powerful force uh, in anything. Think about the banking movement, which I've alluded to a couple of times in this conversation, and why, because I think I do think financial institutions are really important to the whole impact economy, not just impact investing, but the impact economy. We think about the last financial crisis and some of the, quote, move your money campaigns that tried to kickstart afterwards. If you look at what happened, in most markets, very little money moved. Inertia is a powerful thing. Also, the financial institutions don't make it easy to move your money to another financial institution, but we shouldn't underestimate that. Second point, I think we have to be honest that the, some of the resistance and entrenchment of this bifurcated worldview, which is that you maximize commercial endeavors on the one hand and you do wonderful philanthropy on the other hand, that bifurcated view has served a lot of institutions and a lot of individuals very well. And they think it works. They think they are advancing things by pursuing that bifurcated worldview. What we're really talking about with impact investing is the world in between those two bookends. That's what we're trying to build. We're trying to build that middle zone. And we're arguing that our overall system from a long-term viability point of view will be better off if we actually occupy more robustly the activity set between those two bookends. But there are people you know, who, as I say, who have been very successful change. This I see also oftentimes, John, with people who are sitting as trustees of organizations or on boards. And there's a bit of fear that if this is still a relatively new undertaking or it's unfamiliar, even if it's not new, it's unfamiliar, you know, how do I know as a trustee or as a board member, I'm not making the wrong decision? So I, you know, I think we have to be honest about that. And then, so what are the responses? We talked about data, we talked about examples. We talked about proof points. Now, at least we can harness some of that, uh, which should be a source of confidence. The second is I think we do need to look to new voices. I think the intergenerational transfer of wealth that's occurring, I think some of the new voices, the younger generation voices are going to be pushing us. I think gender is a factor here. I think women who are inheriting wealth as well and women who are generating wealth in their own right are also starting to be a real voice. We're seeing that um, in different markets around the globe. So I think there are responses to this, but I mean, the forces of intransigence are real. We're not quite on the other side of that. Bridging the middle zone. I think that's a really great <laughs> way to think about it. And, and the impact measurement and, and the accounting side of it is going to be really key there. And that's obviously a, a challenging issue, an evolving theme in, in impact investing. How do you see this issue with, with so many different frameworks? Do you think in the end there will be one central measurement system or, or how do you see that evolving? That's critically important. You're exactly right, John. So I mentioned earlier in the conversation, the impact management project. What I like about the impact management project is that it's trying to rationalize the conversation we're having about impact. I think when we got started as practitioners, we quickly focused on individual metrics because we, you know, we thought that had tangibility and we wanted to be able to show things. And we started, to, everybody, as you say, <laughs> developed their own methodology. And unfortunately, a lot of these were proprietary methodologies because people thought, well, that, that will show that I'm different. I've got something of value here and that will, that will help my activity get going. 
And I think we're at a different stage now. And I think people are realizing that this is more a conversation about what we are managing. So if you start from the logic flow, what problem are we solving? Okay, this we have clarity on what we're solving. What are the key elements of that problem we're going to be looking at to see if we're on track or not on track in solving that problem? And then what actually can we track in terms of individual metrics? So the impact management project to me is rationalizing and harmonizing a a similar conversation across the board, I think that's incredibly important. One. Two is I think that, I mean, I, I often say when I'm out speaking that let's have a moratorium on new methodologies because, we, you know, as you say, we've got enough of them. Let's be sharing the methodologies and approaches. Let's not keep developing new ones. And on the metrics, what I like to say, John, we should be looking at on an individual deal basis, three maximum five, not 33 or 55 things, because it has to be measurable and relevant to the underlying enterprise that at the end of the day, as we said, is generating the impact. So I am optimistic that we're coming to the right kind of level set of what we're talking about in terms of that macro, meso, micro frame. Then you make the right point. There has to be accountability, both from the accounting standards, but also that you can actually assess what has been measured. And if you look at the principles that the IFC, for example, has just put out inviting, I mean, it's very much a supply side principles, but I thought it was very interesting that the last principle that they put forth was in fact the transparency and the viability of your approach to impact management and metrics. So I don't think this is any longer a, a nice to have. I think it's a, a must have. I am optimistic that we're moving in the right direction on impact management. I am. There's real momentum, but harmonizing and rationalizing, not further fragmenting and overwhelming. What I think we've done not a good job of as an industry, I think sometimes we've had this impact management conversation almost with ourselves and negotiating against ourselves. Yet the real question here is, as we have a clearer articulation of what we mean by it, isn't the real question why isn't every transaction asking the impact question? Because as we know, every capital decision we make, every time we deploy capital, there is an impact that's happening. And I don't think that this inquiry should be restricted to those who are saying, I am purposely investing for positive impact. I think we should be the pioneers who are then sharing our insights, our methodology and approach across the board and expanding the question set so that this is not restrictive to one part of somebody's portfolio, but ultimately it's permeating, or at least the questions being asked across the totality of the portfolio. That's right. Sharing approaches and harmonizing is really important. And I think, I mean, a lot of that sounds like this idea that we, we can ignore negative externalities, which was an excuse for the last century, but that's changing really rapidly. So we're seeing exactly that. Right. Uh, yeah, that accountability really is coming back and running out of excuses really quickly. But we're actually running out of time. But what I would love to do is get a recommendation. I normally ask people for a book recommendation at this stage, but I understand uh, you've got something a little bit more tech savvy than a book recommendation for us. Yes. I mean, so there, there are, look, there are great books out there. And um, the question for folks is, how do I get my arms around this growing community and understand the different actors, what's popping in terms of trends. I mean, some of the questions you've been asking me in the course of this conversation, John, how do I stay at least abreast 
of that. My recommendation is Impact Alpha, which is an online daily news feed of what's happening in Impact. They have deep dives as well. They'll have book recommendations along the way, but it's a very quick and easy daily read. And it gives you in five minutes, 10 minutes, however long it takes you to peruse it, just a quick sense of activity and momentum. And especially because a number of your questions, John, have teased out the diversity of the application of impact approaches. That's both a positive and a challenge. It's a positive because there's just so much. It's a challenge because those of us who are practitioners or those of us who are getting into it are trying to find patterns. We're trying to understand where there are patterns, where there are insights. And if it's such a diverse landscape, that's sometimes challenging to harness. And I do think Impact Alpha is just a really smart, clearly communicated resource to keep your finger on the pulse and to keep that breath awareness while inviting you to then dig into some things for deeper pursuit. Yeah, that's a great tip. I think Impact Alpha is doing a really important job. David Bank and the team took a big risk launching that, but they've done well. And um, yeah, no one's even close to catching up with them. So I hope they keep doing what they're doing. It's great stuff. And you too. Uh, This has been a really great conversation. You know, you guys cover such a breadth of the world, but of of industries and all those sorts of things. So I encourage people to jump onto your website, get a feel for where you operate, what you do. Um, It's a unique model. And, uh, and you're a great speaker and really great at, at sort of elucidating these issues. So, um, yeah, people should check out some of your other videos and, and speaking opportunities as well because there's some great info there. Well, thanks so much, Don. And I look forward to staying engaged with the community down under because I really have enjoyed my, my time out there. I've developed some really good friendships and I would say allies in this uh, common pursuit. And I, I hope we'll stay in touch as well. Good stuff. Let's stay in touch. Thank you, Laurie. Thanks, John. All the best. Yeah, because we see it on the TV screens, but it's just so far away and so disconnected to to be rebuilding a new country. Was there a sense of optimism with the people with this new opportunity? Oh, my gosh. When we first got there, tremendous optimism, because if you remember how how the Velvet Revolution started, initially with the students, and then it became just a groundswell of citizen support across ages, across cities, across professional positions. It was truly a citizen movement. And you felt that. And then Václav Havel being president, I mean, he was just this epitome of hope, having been imprisoned. If you ever read anything about Havel, read letters to Olga, the letters he wrote to his wife while he was in prison. It's just extraordinary. And there he was now as the president of this nascent nation. Yes, it was just, it was heady days in terms of optimism, I will tell you, though, as I lived there for 15 years, over a period of time, I would say that optimism began to wane. And I think it's because the political system didn't really live up to the optimism and expectations. And people didn't continue their participation in the way that I think in, the, in those early heady days uh, it w- was suggested. But nevertheless, that that first period was phenomenal. The other thing I would just say, John, which relates to our impact investing conversation, I think there was also a real sense of now the enterprise level, the individual level, we can come to life. Because, you know, obviously these were state 
state-owned, state-controlled economies. And so what you felt was this, was this kind of a complete switch in where is the dynamism coming from in these countries? It's going to come from individuals and enterprises. And as I say, I don't think we fully converted on that potential, but that was the spirit. That's what was driving people, which was fantastic. Oh, that's so interesting. The political scientist in, in me wants to uh, to keep asking you questions, but now I'm going to let you get on with your day and I'm going to go and uh, make some dinner. So, uh, look, thank you for that. And uh, yeah, hopefully we can definitely stay in touch.